0: I want to stop and pray again for the Gleason's specifically. Uh, there's something going on with Bill at the hospital right now. Um, very, potentially very serious. We don't know a lot of details, but we just need to stop and pray for them as well, okay? Um, Lord God, creator and sustainer of all, I pray you be with Bill. May your mercy and grace be on him, even physically right now. I pray you be with Carrie, with Destiny, with Courtney, Uh, faith, Jeremiah, and then uh, so many other family members you've blessed them with different places. Please be the God of comfort to them, draw their, uh, strengthen their faith. Um, We each need you this much every moment of every day. Um, Thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Amen. It's a hard turn of a sermon opener, but uh, the notes say what the notes say. I remember the first date that Leanne and I went to, went on at Pizza Hut in Milwaukee Airport. Uh, I remember the first time that I told her, I love you, it was under a giant moose head at the college that we attended together. Uh, I remember the first ultrasound that we saw of Elise looking like a little wiggly gummy bear. I remember the hospital room, I can visual, right, visualize it right now, uh, the birth of every one of our kids, and the time that we first held and met uh, James and Lily. Remember all of those different things. Uh, there's something special about firsts, isn't there? Yeah. You know, in our passage from Genesis this morning, we have what has often been called the first gospel. First gospel. Really, because until before chapter 3... For last week's sermon, <clears throat> uh, there wasn't need for good news because there wasn't any bad news. Uh, and then all of a sudden there is. Now what's going to happen? Well, according to God's plan, we see this announcement from God of the gospel. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We saw the deceptive creature, the disastrous choice, and the divine confrontation. And this week and next, we plan to look at the dire consequences of these, that, that choice. That sin in verses 14 to 24. I'm just going to cover the first aspect of that. Lord willing, Keith will cover the rest of it next week. But if you remember going through what we talked about last week, or your own familiarity with the story, if you weren't here, after the man sinned, uh, God asked him what had happened. And Adam accused God, and then he accused his wife before admitting his disobedience. For the moment, God followed Adam's blame-shifting finger, and asks Eve what happened. What is this that you have done? Like her husband, she accuses the serpent before she finally admits her own disobedience. You know, God was not asking these questions like a dad who walks into a destroyed bedroom and yells, what on earth happened in here? No, God eternally knows everything, so he doesn't need an explanation for his own sake. He asks the man and woman in order to draw out a confession of wrongdoing from them. As the book of Proverbs would later teach us, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I'm convinced that's the posture and the reason of how God interacts with the man and his wife, or who we would later call Adam and Eve. But in verse 14, God begins to respond to this rebellion to this doubting, defiant disobedience that we saw last week taking place in the garden. And as he responds, kind of does a adver- reverse order of what has been talked to, right? He talks to the man, and he talks to the woman, woman points to the serpent. Now, God's going to re- talk in reverse order. He's going to talk to the serpent, then he's going to talk to the woman, then he's going to talk to the man. But as he begins talking with the serpent, he does not ask it any questions. No confession is sought from the serpent, for no mercy or pardon will be offered. No grace will be shown to the satanic serpent who enticed his image bearers to sin. There's a difference happening between these, these parties. Instead, for the first time in Scripture, a curse is pronounced by God. A curse, which is the opposite of, of a blessing that we had seen in chapters 1 and then fleshed out in chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I think there are three points that we can see through this uh, curse pronounced over the serpent. First is the serpent's humiliation throughout verse 14. As we just read, because you have done this, because of your part of of, uh, slithering in, questioning God's character through the questioning of his word, uh, the, the, um, the refutation of that, no, God did not. God will not do that. Right? He, he was wrong, he's weak, or he lied to you and he's keeping, he's holding you back. Because of his place in these type of things, he's cursed above all livestock, which is funny, we could almost say below all livestock or below all beasts of the field. You will be lower than this. It's possible that there's some sort of physical change that took place in, in snakes as a species because of this. Some are very convinced the text requires that. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced of that, but, but it's not because God didn't have the right to do it. It's not like, oh, that'd be mean to snakes. Uh, I, I don't think that that's a problem. We're, we're all God's creatures. He can do with any one of us or anything, whatever he wants. Uh, and God obviously has the creative power to be able to change things like that i mean if he wanted to give wings to horses he could do that he just hasn't right so it's not a there's no limitation on it i just don't think that that's the emphasis here i don't think it makes a lot of sense with the narrative and i don't think it makes a lot of sense with the rest of scripture for this to be something that's particularly about snakes in 3 verse 1 when we first meet this crafty serpent we know somewhat intuitively this is no ordinary snake Perhaps someone else is acting through the snake. We, we even just think that, because the snake talks. Right there's already there's something not normal, uh, not typical about this snake. Unless I mean, some of you have talked to snakes. Perhaps I don't. Let's not get there right now. And other parts of the Bible confirm what we anticipate or, or instinctively think is true in Genesis chapter three—that there is something more, really, someone more, or someone behind this serpent, and it's Satan, the devil. A number of other titles that are given uh, to this one throughout scripture, acting through the snake or as the snake. So I think this curse probably has something more to do with the spiritual being involved than it does the the physical being that they saw. Uh, Because this verse isn't just about snakes and then the next verse about Satan. I would say that actually they are both God's pronouncement of a curse against the one who deceived his people. So that being the case, what will happen to this satanic serpent? he is cursed. He is cast down lower than the lowest of creatures. There's smart creatures and there's dumb creatures. And this creature is thrown down as less than even the dumbest of creatures, even than just livestock, good to to chew grass and then get eaten. And he will eat dust, which doesn't have anything to do with his new diet because snakes don't eat dirt. They never have, they never will. Instead, this speaks of how low how degraded the serpent will be yet again we have this same image that that comes into our language right even if you are uh none of us are native hebrew speakers especially or readers especially not ancient hebrew nobody is it's it's a different language today than than what it was but uh it's not hard if i were to say to you hey eat dirt you'd be like oh thank you no, like you recognize that like the lowness of that and, and even just a visualization of it. But we see this throughout scripture as well because the same image happens other places. Like Psalm 72 verse 9, where God's king is being spoken about and praised. And then the text says this, may, may his enemies, may the enemies of God's king lick the dust Okay, and then Isaiah 49 goes into this for not just God's king, but all of God's people. Uh, this verse starts off talking about kings and queens from the nations that'll, that'll be servants in the household of God's people, taking care of just their little babies. And then it says this, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Uh, you don't get much more of a reversal of glory than that, Right? You don't get a better picture of, of a lowering into shame than someone who used to be a king or a queen in a palace, now serving in a nursery and licking dust off of the feet of their enemies. It's a serious change. And I think this is one of the most interesting of the Old Testament passages. Micah chapter 7, verses 17, speaking again of this, this hope that we have looking forward, says this, "...the nations who are enemies of Israel, they shall lick the dust." Like a serpent. God is having Micah look backward and really like, and from looking backward, then look forward as we're going to see across this text of what is really starting in Genesis chapter three and what is continuing to flow through the rest of the narrative of scripture that there are sides to a conflict that we're going to talk about. And all of those on this particular side end up licking dust like a serpent and like the serpent. Crawling on his belly, eating dust, are expressions of of humiliation and subjugation. And this will be the permanent fate of the satanic serpent. He will be laid low and humiliated all the days of his life. There's a permanence to this humiliation. From the serpent's humiliation, we then move to the serpent's fight. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And I think this is what God is saying here to the serpent. Because remember, that's who's being spoken to. This woman that you deceived into siding with you against me, my image-bearing daughter, you have not won her permanently to your side. She now sees you and your lies for what they really are, and she will be mine again. Some try to reduce this. It's funny what... If you take away the divine authorship of Scripture, then it's just oh, I, it, then it means nothing, right? I, and it's just like there's just these coincidences of, of things, or right? Just people trying to build something that's maybe complicated or clever. I don't know if you've read any other religious texts, but some of those are, really look like people trying to be uh, connected and, and clever. Um, that's not what's happening here. And so when some people look at this and they're just kind of like, well, not divine. And so what would an ancient Moses have thought about this ancient story and they try to reduce this passage to be like, well, yeah, I mean, humans, I guess especially women and snakes, well, they just don't get along. Let's move on to the next verse. Like, really? Like, that's, people will be scared of snakes now. Like, that's, that's all we get from this verse. It seems like there's a whole lot more that's happened and a whole lot more that's going on, because I, th- I think that's ridiculous, right? Like, Sure, most people don't like snakes and maybe some of you really hate snakes and then you have the anomaly person who really loves snakes and then probably gets bit by those snakes and learns that they probably shouldn't have loved those snakes but that's fine like snakes or don't like snakes but that's not what this is talking about. Right? Do you get this is a declaration of war? That's what's happening here. I will put enmity between like I, I declare the beginning of a war. And there are sides to this war, as sides with any war. There is now a war happening between the serpent and the woman, but that's not all. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the the serpent and the woman. Okay, that's the first two characters in this. But it's an ongoing war, because this will also be between your offspring and her offspring, none of whom exist yet. So it's a war between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring the family of one side, the descendants of one side, the descendants and family of the other side. And even more than that, you and the serpent, your offspring and her offspring, and then it becomes you versus he. So now we've gone from woman to offspring to one person, one man, one individual. That is continuing this same battle that we see between these type of things so at some point i think and and again i am reading forward but we're going to read forward for the rest of the day we've been doing it with all of genesis and we're not going to stop so reading forward into that but also starting with this this last clause in chapter 15 or verse 15 he like who's he and i think what's being set up in this battle is so many times happens in ancient battles between groups of people, that there will be some sort of climactic battle of champions between you, the serpent, and he, some representative offspring or child of the woman. If this is your first time reading Genesis, uh, then you'll probably have very little knowledge of what's going on here. That's okay, because like, you've you got to... Start somewhere. Anytime you interact with a new subject or a new book, you, you don't know what's happening. Uh, but that's just not where we want to stop. <laughs> it's not where we want to, to stay. But as you read and reread and then continue rereading, by the way, that's, that's how we're supposed to interact with God's word. We, we read it, and then we reread it, and then we continue to reread it. And, it, and it's, we start to see more of those connections from this divine author, which is why, you know, we go for yearly or bi-yearly Bible reading plans. Uh, It's not just to give us something to do, but it's because you actually glean more the more that you interact with it. You start to see what's happening. That's why we just continue reading and studying scripture together. But as you read and reread and continue rereading, you're going to see this idea, this idea, this war idea traced throughout everything in God's word. This curse that God has pronounced at the beginning of Scripture is, is a foreshadowing of the rest of Scripture. Um, I know I've mentioned Dickens, uh, Charles Dickens, before, but like every, every different book that I read or listen to from him, he, just, he always gets me. I just went through good, great expectations. It took me a few months. It's really long, like 24-hour audiobook. But it's just like just different characters that come in. I'm like, well, that guy doesn't matter. It's just like he, get, he gets me again, right? It's like that character completely mattered. Like, wow, like, how did I miss that? But then if you were to reread it again, read a good book. Like, there's normal books. Maybe normal books don't do foreshadowing very well. Or normal movies kind of miss good opportunities. But good stories, good authors, the best authors, they don't waste objects. They don't waste characters. They don't waste settings. God is a good author. God is the best author. And so there is a foreshadowing happening here about who this you is versus who this he is. It become more and more significant as the story unfolds. And this war between two sides isn't just between the serpent's family and the woman's family. Like that's just the first introduction that we have to, it. but as it continues to expand, we see that the two sides are actually God's enemies and God's people. That's, that's who the battle is. God's enemies, the enemies of God, and the people of God. We don't get much further in Genesis before we see the, the first battle of this war break out, where Cain, who is supposed to be the child received from the Lord, oh, I have offspring now, he's the one. He wasn't the one. He actually sided with the serpent against his brother and murdered him. The serpent's side wins in the first battle. Then we get to Genesis 6, and by Genesis 6, it seems like all of humanity is part of the serpent's family. All of them have sided against God, except for Noah. But Noah is not the champion. Then after Noah, humanity again sides with the serpent until God calls Abram, but Abram isn't the champion. None of his kids or grandkids or his great-grandkids, they're not the champions either made very evident from the text. And God raises up Moses to deliver his people from his enemy Pharaoh, the side of the serpent. But Moses is not the champion. And eventually God raises up King David. And King David, I mean, he really looks like he's going to be the champion. I mean, if there's ever been the guy who's going to be the guy, it's, it's David. And you know David's story. David is not the champion. By the time of the prophets, almost all of those who are supposed to be God's people... They've actually sided with God's enemies. Then God said some of his enemies against his people who are his enemies to destroy each other. In judgment of these type of things, essentially everyone in the world except this small remnant of people that are always like prone to extinction, everyone is now the offspring of the serpent. And this continues into the time of the Gospels as well. Think of all those different references to like curse others like serpents you brood of vipers right there's sides to this conflict but even as God judges nation after sinful nation including the sinful nation of Israel even as God does that the promise from Genesis three fifteen remains true and continues to be restated there is a human coming who will fight for us against the evil serpent this remains true and Paul picks up this theme in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those or rescue or deliver those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because the one who God promised would come to fight on our behalf, he has come. And he is Jesus. The Son of God and the Son of a woman. It fits because it's a fulfillment of this first gospel promise. Jesus came to fight the evil serpent for us. Jesus came to fight the evil serpent. For us. I was talking to the kids, but it was a good amen. Jesus came to fight the evil serpent for us. (laughs) He is the only one who has ever resisted all of the serpent's lies. He's the only one who has rejected all of the serpent's temptations. He alone can fight with the serpent, and he has, because Jesus came to fight the evil serpent for us. This is the first gospel. This is the first declaring of good news from God to sinners, and it is good news because that fight that God has declared will take place over the serpent, that fight will end in the serpent's defeat. That's the third point of this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Continuing with this metaphor of a human fighting a snake, the human, the woman's offspring, this he will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. But you can picture that, right? Can you picture what would take place with a human being versus a serpent? The snake doesn't attack an arm normally, or the stomach doesn't go for the neck. Where does a snake go for a human being? It's foot, the heel, right? It bites you down low near your feet. And when you go to kill a snake, uh, you don't try to shoot it in the heart. You don't try to aim along all of those different things. You certainly don't grab it by the tail. You go for the Head. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. A lot of times people have kind of translated, and intensifies, he shall crush your head. I love the idea. It's just not what the text says, but I don't think the text needs to use that word to get the point across because it's not just like a little thwack, right? Like the serpent isn't just bumping against his heel and he's not getting a bump on the head. It's, it's a bite versus a stomp. What is this talking about? Again, it's not just like garden or hiking information for you. The fight between Christ and the serpent would be a deadly battle, and the serpent would be defeated. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to the serpent's defeat And as he wrote about the promised new heavens and the new earth that were coming, the text up here, Isaiah 65, 25, one of the many blessings that he wrote about for that new heavens and that new earth where God's people will be with him was this, dust shall be the serpent's food. Again, there's no need, and it's, it's really outside of the scope of what scripture is communicating to be like, oh yeah, so snakes will eat dirt then. You're missing the arc of what scripture's teaching. Isaiah is going all the way back to Genesis and he's being like, and that day, the, that place forever, the serpent will remain defeated. He's not gonna rise up out of that place of humiliation. His defeat, all the days of his life will be evident then. Dust will always be the serpent's food. He will not win ever. He has lost, and it will be there. The serpent's defeat will be finished and enjoyed throughout eternity. What could Isaiah possibly be talking about except for the fulfillment of this promise? That's my question. Amazingly, this first gospel is not a message of salvation by sacrifice. If we were to ask and each kind of take our, our, our notes and felt like, what is the gospel? We would think in reference of, of what Christ accomplished for our sin. That's not wrong, right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, but the first proclamation of the gospel, not spoken to humanity, but in their hearing is a message of conquering to the snake. You will lose. That's the first good news. It's Interesting. Genesis 3, the gospel is a message of conflict revol- resulting in victory and defeat. And this is the story of the whole Bible. Conflict resulting in a victory and in a defeat. This is the, this is the story of all of human history. Right? Snake people fighting against each other and then taking every opportunity for the snake people to attack God's people. This is where all of these conflicts come from, because the snake doesn't want to advance its own side. The serpent just wants to destroy everything. And so if he can take all of his people from different nations and pit them against each other so they all die and reject anything about who God is, right, he has still won in his mind. And then we see the snake people, right, the serpent's offspring constantly going against God's people throughout these type of things. It's conflict There is victory and there is defeat. This is the story of eternity in just one short verse. It's a tale of two peoples, the family of the serpent and the family of the woman. And that raises an important question for you today. Which family are you a part of? Are you part of the family of the serpent Or are you part of the family of the woman? Because when it comes to who you are forever, those are the only two options. Because this is not just a story about Adam and Eve and the serpent. It's not just someone else's story from some ancient thing. It's not just a mythological thing that happened. It's not just some way to explain how things are. It's a true question. A question that you need to consider and answer is which side are you on? As we saw last week, the story of Eve's temptation is replayed in each of our lives a hundred times a day as we give in to temptation, over and over and over again. Adam's sin and his excuses are our sin and our excuses. Where they failed in the garden and the rest of humanity has failed since the garden, we also fail. We have been defeated by the evil serpent and then somehow have decided to side with him. So we are under God's curse because of our unbelief and our disobedience. If we're on the serpent's side, then that which is spoken against the serpent is spoken against us. There is no avoiding that reality. There's no escaping God's judgment on our own. So if we are on the serpent's side, part of his family, we are cursed like the serpent. And then the Bible tells us that Christ redeemed or rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, Jesus didn't just fight for us. He suffered our defeat for us. God's word tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And since the punishment that every single one of our sins deserves is death... Just as surely as God had said, You shall surely die, so Jesus died in our place on the cross. He became sin for us. And he suffered the punishment that our sins deserved. Christ died, not for his sins. Christ died for our sins. Christ died. For our sins. Just as we heard from John's gospel read this morning, on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we gather to worship and celebrate. Not just remembering someone who's dead, but worshiping someone who is alive again. And that's not just an Easter thing. The New Testament, though, it elaborates on the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. And it, and it does so in terms of, of conflict, in terms of victory and defeat. This is what the New Testament teaches us about Christ's death and resurrection and what it says about his victory. First, that Christ is victorious over sin. Listen to a couple of verses that talk about this type of an idea Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says something very similar. As it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. On the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus fought sin, and Jesus defeated it. What does this mean? What does this look like? This means that Jesus, in fighting sin and then becoming victorious over it, Jesus fought the same battles of temptation to sin that we do, but he never lost. Right? Jesus had those same lies whispered to him, the same enticement to those type of things. He never bit the hook. He never took the bait. Felt the full weight of temptation in every way, just like we are. But Jesus never sinned. And in never giving it a single inch, never a single word, never a single thought, never a single deed outside of perfect, trusting obedience to the goodness of his Father and the truth of his word and the perfection of his plan, by never doing that, Jesus didn't lose to sin. Jesus beat sin. Bible also tells us it's not just that the battle against sin is hard, and it is, but Jesus fought it, and Jesus won, but also this is in the same sense of the punishment for sin is death. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, was actually, in dying, he was killing sin. Jesus defeated sin by not sinning and by dying to take our Punishment for our sin, what we deserve. Jesus Christ, victorious over sin, victorious over death. Right? That's how those things connect. The punishment for sin is death. So since we have all sinned, we all deserve to die. Everyone dies, and everyone who dies stays dead. But what about the few people in the Bible who died and then were raised? Well, that happened, but they all died again. Kind of a rough time for the widow's son or Lazarus, right? Have, what did he die of the second time? Was it easier the second time or just that much harder? I don't know. They all died again because death had a hold on them. Death has always had it this unbreakable, undeniable, unescapable hold on people. Always. Until Jesus Jesus, who did not sin, did die. He got paid for something that he didn't do. That's not justice. It's not righteousness. That's not how that's supposed to work. But since he had done nothing to deserve the punishment that he received, death had no authority over him. It's like after he was thrown into the prison cell of death, his sentence was overthrown because he was innocent and didn't deserve to be there. So he was permanently set free from the prison cell of death, and he will never be imprisoned in the cell of death again. He's never going to go back. This is what Scripture teaches us. Romans chapter 6, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because we are sinners, death does have a dominion over us. Jesus was not a sinner. Death had no dominion over him. But he allowed himself to be put under the authority of death, but it couldn't hold it. So he cast it off. And his victory is not for himself alone. And that's what's amazing. Jesus' victory over death is not just for himself. He shares his victory over death with his people. When he was set free from that cell, he left the prison door open behind him, and he calls his people to follow him to eternal living freedom. And so even when we die physically, it's not the end. It can't be, because Jesus left that prison cell open for all who will trust in him to follow him to new eternal life. So it isn't over. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. Jesus' path and our path following him. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's just the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's just the first to follow this path from death into resurrection. As by a man came death... Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. There's a a progression that has to be followed. First, Christ. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When he says, it's time to leave the cell, then we will rise. We sang about that today. We haven't risen yet. No one has except Christ. But one day, we will rise as Jesus rose. We will not be held captive to that cell. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. just waiting for the victory to come eagerly our text this morning from genesis 3 is an easter text (laughs) i thought i forgot i didn't relates perfectly to this relates perfectly to resurrection sunday because on the cross and at his resurrection is when christ was also victorious over satan this is when we see his victory over sin was on that morning with that empty tomb we see that he defeated sin because he defeated death and in defeating sin and defeating death he defeated satan apparently since the garden the devil has wielded death the punishment that our sins deserve he's wielded it like some sort of a vicious whip enslaving humanity we fear death we fear death because of our sin And our dread of death comes from the innate sense that we will answer to God for our sins. That's why, as Keith mentioned, that's why some people, we were just like, don't even want to think about death. That's what he talked about on Friday, right? As a young boy, he's like, I just don't want to even think about death. I don't even want to go to a funeral. He's like, well, we can try to escape that for a time, or we can try to overswing, right? was the other part that you said that some people are like, oh, no, I love the idea of death. I'm going to decorate my room with death. I'm going to dress in death. I'm going to sing about death. I'm going to read about death. It's like, I'm not afraid of death, (laughs) ha, ha, ha. It's like, yes, you are. It's like you can't ignore it and you can't embrace it enough for the reality to come. It's like you are all one minute closer to dying than you were 60 seconds ago. And we're afraid of that because of our sin and because of the sense of judgment that we have, that someone knows what you've done and what you've been like, and you're going to have to answer to them for it. And since it hasn't happened here, it's probably going to happen wherever there is. And the Bible provides answers for those things. But Jesus is victorious over that. Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, since we're human, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He became human. Why? That through death, by dying, Jesus might destroy... What are you going to say? Are you going to say he's destroyed sin? No, that's not this passage. You're going to say that he's destroyed death? That's not this passage. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's going to stay down this time. And deliver by destroying, by dying, destroying the devil who wields death over us, delivering all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus destroyed our sin, he destroyed death, and he destroyed the devil who wielded death over us. Right? So we trace this victory across scripture. We don't even know what the conflict is really going to be like in Genesis chapter 3. But as we go through the rest of scripture, we see the conflict. And then as we read about that conflict, we see the conflict in our own lives. Like we see it playing out in everything that ever happens. We see the conflict. We taste little bits of victory. We know a whole lot of defeat. And then we wonder what's going to happen. Well, victory is going to happen for Christ's people. And defeat is going to happen for Christ's enemies. All those who are with the serpent and like the serpent will know the defeat of the serpent. And this is the climax of that battle portrayed for us in cool images because it goes from this little serpent to a dragon in Revelation. This is the climax of the battle. The devil who had deceived them was thrown, not dropped, grabbed by his wretched throat and thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's going to be done. It will be over. And with him death and with him sin. Christ's victory over Satan, then, is his people's victory over Satan. Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think that is a clear reference to this first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3. You get to share in all of Christ's victory. You get to know his victory over sin. You get to know his victory over death. You get to know, taste, experience his victory over Satan. These promises are yours if you trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you have embraced that his life was without sin and his death is a payment for your sins and that his resurrection is true and is your hope of eternal life. Genesis 3.15, it speaks of a war speaks of a battle between evil and good. It is a tale of two peoples, the serpent's family and the woman's family. And we've, we've seen that this comes to a climax in a battle between Christ and Satan. And We've seen that Christ is the victor. And Christ's victory is shared with his people. And that's not all, though, because Satan's defeat is shared with his people as well. In your sin... You have sided with the serpent against God. When you lie, you show yourself to be part of his family, for he's the father of lies. So liars are his offspring. When you hate, you show yourself to be part of his family, for he is a hate-filled murderer from the beginning. When you steal, you steal like he would steal. When you lust, you lust like he would lust. You covet as he would covet. You reject God's goodness and the truth of his word because you were born the offspring of the serpent. Not someone else. You. Me. Every single human being born is born part of the offspring of the serpent. And listen once again to God's word as it speaks about the eternal destiny of unrepentant, unforgiven sinners, because as Christ's people share his victory, the serpent's people share his defeat. He is cast head first into the lake of fire, and then Revelation 21 says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you have never confessed your sin to God and turned away from it, It is because you are still dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you are walking. You are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the serpent. You're following him in his path. That same spirit that is even right now at work in the rest of the sons of disobedience. But if you are, you're not alone in that because among whom we all once lived, right? This isn't just like, oh, the the religious Christian-y church people are just automatically the side of Christ and had nothing ever to do with being the side of the serpent. No, I was born the offspring of the serpent, just like you were. Every human being has been. But admitting that, allows for the change. Not by cleaning yourself up. We all once lived this way, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Boy, that tree looks good. I know God said no, but it's desirable. It looks tasty. It's going to give me wisdom. I'm going to take, and I'm going to eat. We all live like that. We're by nature. We're children of wrath, children destined for wrath, just like the rest of mankind. It's true of all of us, and then here is the good news. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins as offspring of the serpent, he makes us alive together with Christ, rescuing serpent descendants and making them Christ's people. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you can be saved and raised up with Christ and then seated with him, sharing his victory, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, the permanence of this victory, in the coming ages, that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been or can be saved through faith. This is not your own doing. How do I stop being the serpent's offspring? What do I have to do? Do I just stop lying? can't undo the damage. Do I just stop lusting? Do I stop coveting? Well, as much as you try and as much as you have tried, it's never worked. Why do you think that all of a sudden now it's going to work? just becomes some guy in a bow tie yelled at you for an hour? Like now you have the motivation? That's not how it works. It doesn't work for me. It's never worked for anybody. It's not going to work for you. By grace, you have been saved through faith, trusting that you can't do it. It's not your own doing, it is a gift that God gives, a gift that God offers. Listen, serpent seed, you don't have to be like that anymore. I will actually rescue you because I took that punishment on myself in the person of my son. Not a result of works. No one may boast. It's Christ's victory. We are his workmanship. We who have trusted in christ we're not our workmanship we're his workmanship created anew recreated in christ jesus for good works there's the change happens after you become his offspring as it were god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them christ died for our sins and he rose again in victory over sin and death and satan and this is the good news of the gospel do you believe that this message is true? Just just listen. Just ask. If you've asked it a thousand times, ask it a thousand one. If you've, asked, if you've never asked it, ask it for the first time. But do you believe this message is true? Have you trusted in Christ as your only hope? Do you know that you are forgiven? Of your sin because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Hear this offer of eternal life that God puts before you. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you, you will be saved. Father, please take the truth of your glorious gospel, which portrays your glory and the victory of Jesus. Seeds sown here today, may they take root in our hearts, bear fruit for your glory. Amen.